Well, please turn with me once again in your Bibles, this time to the book of Psalms and Psalm number six. Psalm number six. Been working our way through some of these these early Psalms the last few weeks. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, I think last week I planned to begin uh, a new series next Lord's Day in the morning. We'll continue looking at the Psalms in the evening. We're going to work our way through the book of Ruth, God willing, for the remainder of the summer. And then just continue on in the Psalms in the evening. But this morning and this evening, God willing, we'll be studying uh, a couple more Psalms. And this morning we come to Psalm number six. So let's read God's word together. Notice the title of the psalm says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Amen. This is God's word. And please keep your Bibles open there at Psalm 6 as we make our way through it this morning. Uh, the title of our sermon this morning, Agony, Appeal and Assurance. Agony, appeal, and assurance. Well, these past few weeks, as well as it being too hot to seemingly eat or sleep or do nearly anything, uh, we've probably also, in the warm weather, we've, we've noticed which parts of our homes and gardens uh, get the, the full blast of the sun, and which parts of our homes or gardens are just always in the shade. There are those parts that everything's lit up, it's high definition, so to speak, and there are other areas that are just always shady. Nothing is ever quite that bright. Nothing is as clear as it is elsewhere. And sometimes our lives, our very souls, are a bit like that as well, aren't they? There, there are those parts of our lives where maybe things are going very well. Everything's bright and clear. We can see where everything fits. There are those other parts of our lives, maybe even the depths of our own hearts, where everything's dark and gloomy and shadowy, perhaps because of anxieties, frustrations, busyness, or even our own sins. One writer has said that the book of Psalms provides a window into both the bright lights and the dark corners of the human soul. In other words, uh, the Psalms are not just songs for the happy times, they're not just songs to sing to try to make yourself feel better, uh, as, acting as if you have no problems at all. The Psalms address those, those dark and gloomy and, and shady portions of our lives as well. And Psalm 6, uh, no doubt, falls firmly into that camp. Psalm 6 is the first of seven so-called penitential Psalms in the Psalter. 
uh, the others being Psalms 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143, the penitential psalms. Penitential just means that these are psalms that particularly focus on confessing sin. And, and they're marked by sorrow over sin. Just take note as we begin today, friends, that sometimes sorrow will be the substance of our prayers. Sometimes sorrow will be the substance of of our prayers. Sometimes we need to bring our sorrows and our agonies to God in prayer, perhaps before we bring them to anyone else. Our closest friendships should be marked by being able to share our sorrows with one another. Maybe we don't share our sorrows with everybody, but we share them, don't we, with a parent or a best friend or a spouse or a pastor or elder. Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was a man of sorrows. He's experienced the sorrow and pain of life in this fallen world. Not only that, but if we have faith in him, then he is described in Scripture as our friend, our greatest friend, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is therefore uniquely qualified for us to bring our sorrows to him, both in prayer and in praise, as we see in Psalm 6. And so we want to think, first of all, this morning about the agony that we see in this psalm. Agony. A lot of the words that David uses in Psalm 6 are found almost nowhere else in the Psalter. And that suggests that even by David's standards, what he was going through when he wrote Psalm 6 was particularly difficult and trying and sorrowful. He was in agony, in fact. And he points to several causes of his agony. Uh, The first and chief cause of David's agony as he writes this psalm is an awareness of his own sin. An awareness of his own sin. Look at verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Now David doesn't name a specific sin here, but he is clearly feeling convicted, perhaps guilty about some particular sin. Someone has said that we aren't sinners because we sin. Rather, we commit sin because we are sinners. We commit sin because we are sinners. A dog barks because it's a dog. We sin because we are sinners. It's, it's our nature. At least when we're born by, by nature, we are, we are sinful. And David knows that and he comes to God agonizingly aware of his recent sins. Agonizingly aware that sin as well invites the punishment and the wrath of God. That's what he's speaking about in verse 1. He says in verse 1, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And so David is agonizingly aware of his sin. But it's not just spiritual agony that David is going through. Notice as well that he's in a physical agony. Verse 2, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He even says in verse 6 that the horrible circumstances he's in have left him sobbing himself to sleep. The word for flood in verse 6 is the same as the word swim in Hebrew. So he's saying that he's swimming in tears when he puts his head on the pillow. Verse 7, he says, my eye wastes away because of grief. He's saying he's got blurry vision. 
because of the stress and anxiety that he's going through at this moment in time. Friends, this man is a wreck. He can't sleep. He's shaking in his bones. He's got blurry vision. To put it in modern language, we might say that he's having a panic attack or or some sort of breakdown. This is King David, the hero, the, the warrior king of Israel. And yet he's in agony, physical and spiritual. Another thing that seems to be causing David agony is life's uncertainties. The the frustration of waiting for things to change. Look at verse 3. The last line. The last line of verse 3. But you, O Lord, how long? How long? It almost sounds like an unfinished sentence. That this is as far as David can get. All he can say is, how long? How much longer will I be crying myself to sleep? How much longer will the wicked be winning? How much longer will I feel this distance and separation from God because of my own sin? Have you ever felt these things, friends? Have any of these things ever caused you a measure of agony? Has it driven you to pray as David does here? Lord, how much longer? How much longer until my spouse becomes a Christian? How much longer until the pain in my body goes away? How much longer will men and women around me that I work with or in my family or my friendship circles, how much longer will they ignore the gospel? How much longer will we be in a nation that celebrates wickedness and passes unrighteous laws? It can be agonizing sometimes to wonder how long. And here we see how timely the Psalms are. Here's an ancient Psalm written so long ago and asking the same question that we all often end up asking today. Friends, King David was a king that experienced agony. And by the way, so was King Jesus. In going through the Psalter, we always need to consider that Jesus sang these Psalms. He prayed these prayers. He experienced these things. Maybe today you don't feel yourself to be in particular agony. We can be thankful for that. But here's a psalm showing you nonetheless the agony that your Savior has gone through for you. Jesus knew the agony of sin. Not his own sin, but the sins of his people that were placed on his shoulders and for which he paid the ultimate penalty. Jesus knew the agony of physical weakness. The eternal God who made everything that we can see and hear and touch today. He came into this world in human flesh and he saw terrible sights and he heard insults and blasphemies rain down upon him and he he felt the, the pierce of the nails going through his hands and feet on the cross. For Jesus, it wasn't the uncertainty of the future that caused him agony. It was the certainty that he was going to die with the wrath of his, of his father poured out upon him. Friends, we have a saviour who has been through agony. Agony similar perhaps to what you are going through today or have gone through recently or will go through in future. And indeed a saviour who has gone through even worse agony than we can imagine. He is willing to listen 
to our agonizing prayers. So that's the first thing that we see in the psalm, agony. But secondly, we also then see the, the appeal, the appeal that David makes. And as much as David is in agony, he's still respectful and reverent in praying to God. Look what he says in verse 2. Be gracious to me, O God. This is the, the grounds in which David appeals. David doesn't appeal for God's help based on the good things he's done or the bad things he hasn't done or how much better he is compared to others. He can only appeal to God on the basis of God's grace. You can't earn grace, however good or bad you are. Grace is a free gift. And it's through grace that David makes his appeal. Look what he says in verse 4. And boys and girls, this is your sheet today. If you're working on the, on the coloring sheet, this is the verse that you have. Verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for what? For what reason, boys and girls, does David want God's help? For the sake of your steadfast love. Your steadfast love. And boys and girls, maybe some of you have the books at home that describe this as God's never-ending, never-giving-up, special, promised, covenant love. That's, why, that's how David appeals to God. He appeals to God based on his gracious, never-giving-up, never-ending love. Really what David is saying to God here, friends, is, God, you've promised. Mums and dads, have you ever had your children come and just say, Mum and Dad, you promised? That's what David's doing here. He says, God, you promised to Abraham, to Moses, to me, that however poorly I may do, whatever sin I may be guilty of, and genuinely confess that you are merciful, that you are loving. That's the basis of David's appeal. Five times in the first four verses, he uses that name for God, Lord, in our English translations. I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but it bears repeating. Whenever you see Lord, capital letters, it's Yahweh. Yahweh, the, the special covenantal name of God. The name that really speaks to us about his grace. David knows what type of God he is dealing with. And when you know what kind of God you're dealing with, friends, it will ease your agony and it will encourage your appeal. It will ease your agony and it will encourage your appeal. Look again at verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I am languishing. David assumes that God cares about his agony. Ralph Davis puts it this way. David assumes, David assumes that our misery arouses God's mercy. Our misery arouses God's mercy. I'm sure some of you, Hannah and I, are at this stage now, but some of you have no doubt experienced your little child in their toddler years having a stumble or, or bumping into something, falling down, and, and there's that little look of shock on their faces. Where did that pain come from? And then in an instant they, they turn to you, with that little trembling lip and that sorry for themselves little cry and their eyes are on you and their arms are outstretched and they want to be lifted up. Why? Because they assume that you care about their pain. And even if we know that that pain is 
sometimes very, very mild and will be gone in an instant. We still embrace them. We reassure them. We show grace to them. Friends, how much more does our Heavenly Father care about our agonies? How much more carefully will he listen to our appeals? David builds on his appeal in verse 5. It's not just that he's hurting physically or spiritually. He actually fears dying. Look at verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol who will give you praise? And most likely, David goes on to mention his enemies towards the end of the psalm. Most likely here, he is thinking of death at the hands of his enemies. David, of course, knows that he, his soul will live on forever. Some of the other psalms speak about that, of being with God eternally. But what he's saying here is that he doesn't want to die at the hands of his enemies because his enemies then will think that David's God has been no help to him. In, in the ancient world, when you went out to battle, you were representing your God or gods. And if you defeated your enemy, it was seen as a victory for your God over the gods of your enemies. And so David is saying that, God, if I die right now with my enemies victorious, no one's going to worship you. No one's going to give you the praise and worship that you deserve. They'll think that you're a defeated God. One writer says, the tragedy of death is that it silences a man's worship. David says he wants to continue witnessing to the world through his worship of God. He doesn't want his life cut short at this particular moment. And so he asks God to rescue him from death. The, the, the strong language continues, verses 6 and 7, I'm weary with my mourning. My eye wastes away because of grief. Again, friends, David assumes... That his misery arouses God's mercy. That Yahweh looks on the agony of his child and is filled with compassion. Is David's assumption correct? Is he right to appeal to God like this? Well, again, when we turn our thoughts to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course David is right to, to speak to God like this. Of course he is right to believe that his misery arouses God's mercy. When Jesus saw a widow crying because her son had died, Luke seven thirteen, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. When he saw his friend Mary coming to him after the death of her brother Lazarus, heartbroken, John eleven thirty three, when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And we read also there in that passage, Jesus wept. Friends, Jesus is full of compassion for people in agony. And what's true of Jesus, God the Son, is true of God the Father. Jesus on one occasion said to his disciples, John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at me. Two distinct persons, Father and Son, but one God. The same divine nature. What is true of Jesus is true of the Father in terms of their love, their mercy, their grace. David knew this God, friends. And in a moment of intense agony, he appeals to this God. Yes, he's a God whose wrath is aroused by our sin. But because of his covenant, never giving up love. He's also a God whose mercy 
is aroused by our misery. And maybe some of you today simply need to be reminded that if you only would bring your agonies to God in prayer, you will be greeted by a God who loves you. He loves you. Sometimes pastors perhaps don't spend enough time reminding their people that God loves you. He is ready to hear your prayers. He cares about whatever seemingly small or in the world's eyes insignificant anxieties that are weighing you down today. Whatever troubles, worries, sins you're grappling with. He cares. He is interested. He has, he has compassion. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knows what's waiting for you on Monday morning. He knows what it is about Tuesday that is worrying you today. He knows the agony of last week or last month or the past year or more. He is moved with compassion. And so make your appeals to him. He is ready to hear them, however agonizing they may be. Agony, appeal, and thirdly and finally today, assurance. Assurance. Look at verse 7. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. King David, of course, always faced the threat of foes of one kind or another. We were looking at some of the, the earlier Psalms, Psalms 3 and 4 and 5, and uh, how some of them were written at the time when his own son Absalom was plotting against him. David always faced threats of one kind or another. But he isn't helpless. In fact, towards the end of this psalm, his, his fears and worries seem to have been brought under control. Look what he says in verse 8. This is a warning to his enemies who, who maybe are looking on David and thinking, well, this is a good time to strike. He's in a right state. This might be our time to have a go at him. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord will accept my prayer. Again, notice there's the, the covenantal name of God being used again. And David says with confidence, He has heard me. He will answer me. Whether I get the answer now or later, it will come, David is saying. He's been in agony, but he's made his appeal. And now he has assurance. And he ends the psalm with very strong assurance. Verse 10. For all that it feels like his enemies are unbeatable now, David says in the end, they'll be destroyed in a split second. They'll, they'll turn back, he says, verse 10, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. In a moment. In an instant. That's the assurance that the prayer of faith can bring, friends. And I want you to notice this. This is vitally important. The prayer ends and the victory hasn't come yet. But the very act of prayer reassures David that the victory is coming. It hasn't come yet when this psalm ends. But the simple act of praying reassures David that the victory is coming. His future is secure in God's hands. And that tells us something vitally important about prayer, friends. Prayer is not about getting God to change his mind. It's not about, you know, persuading God to 
do things, you know, it's not about persuading him to do things that we think, well, he doesn't really want to do that, or does God really care about that? We're going to have to really convince him that this is something he should be interested in. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer often results in God changing us, reassuring us, strengthening our faith. If you have a problem with someone, maybe someone in the, in the workplace or even in the home is, is making life difficult for you, maybe you're tempted to slander or complain, try praying for that person and about your attitude to that person and see what impact that has on the situation. If you have an anxiety issue like David did at times, you're anxious about the busyness of your life or the needs of your children or the health of your elderly loved ones, pray about those anxieties. Cast your cares upon him and see what impact it has upon you. If you're discouraged about the hatred this world has for Christians and, and you struggle to get the energy to plod on in your Christian faith, pray and keep on praying and don't doubt, don't doubt that God cares about those agonies and those appeals. Like I was saying last week, friends, prayer changes our perspective. It lifts our head up instead of just looking out at the world and all its trouble or looking into ourselves and all of our sins. It lifts our head up to look to God. And through prayer, God, Ralph Davis rather says, prayer doesn't always change things, but it lays hold of the God who does. Prayer doesn't always change things, but it lays hold of the God who does. Sometimes prayer is about us changing. Part of what's happening in David's life at the time that he wrote this psalm is that he is being disciplined. He says that in verse 1, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What he's saying is, I know that you're going to have to discipline me, Lord God, but please discipline me graciously. Please be, be gentle and gracious in your discipline. We tend to think that discipline is just another word for punishment, and that's maybe not necessarily true. Discipline doesn't, uh, discipline doesn't necessarily mean punishment. It means changing or creating new habits, new attitudes, new beliefs, new behaviors that may be painful in the process, but will lead to fruit in the end. The athletes in Tokyo who will be on our TV screens the next few weeks, they've spent maybe five years disciplining their bodies so that they can be fruitful at just the right moment, so to speak. Students in school, they discipline their minds for the two years of their GCSEs or their A-levels so that they can be fruitful at just the right time. Well, friends, as Christians, we are, we are to be disciplining ourselves by God's grace. Every aspect of our lives, our thoughts, our, our, our work, our, our words, all of it is to be brought under God's discipline. And that will involve conviction of sin, and that will involve repentance, and that will involve making our appeals to God in prayer. And as we do those things, friends, we will be strengthened in our assurance. We will be strengthened in our assurance. David can finish this psalm knowing that God's disciplining of him is for his good. Again, just as parents know that their little tiny children need their discipline, need their direction, that contrary to the claims of our 
mixed up society that little children are not in the best place to make big decisions for themselves. And just like good parents, our Father God knows what is best for us. And that leads to David's great assurance that his enemies won't prevail, that his sorrow will turn to joy, and that the Lord hears and accepts his prayers. Well, we've seen already how Jesus Christ fulfills the agony of this psalm, but as we think about David's assurance, Christ comes to mind again. We read earlier the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Being made perfect, we read, Jesus Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe, or sorry, to all who obey him. Have you cried out to God today in whatever agonies of life you may be facing? Have you cried out in the name of Jesus Christ? He is uniquely qualified to hear your prayers because he also has experienced your prayers. He has experienced the agony of enemies against him. He has experienced agony the like of which you and I can't even imagine. And he is uniquely qualified to hear and answer our prayers. Maybe you're in agony today. Maybe it's not quite agony, but it's certainly not pleasant. Who can you appeal to? What assurance can you hang on to? You can appeal to Yahweh, to the God of never giving up, never ending love, the love of Jesus Christ. And you can have assurance that you will be heard when you cry in the name of your gracious Savior. Amen.